And everybody test one, two, three. Can you jack it up just a Welcome. tad bit? Thanks. Welcome. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group. To prepare for our Big Book Study, let's get focused by having a three-minute moment of silent meditation, followed by the fog light prayer. Good evening, everyone. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Mike Chase. And I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Chris. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to start that there meditation in a couple minutes. So let's take a moment to get situated. Everybody looks spread out and comfy. Please Good. turn off all devices that make noise or will distract others for the duration of the meeting. Any swiping devices, Game Boys, beepers, or personal mobile. Uh, just go ahead and set those on the off or airplane setting for the rest. Thank you. The coffee area is open in the back. Just don't make too much of a commotion. I'd like to uh, thank the donuts that magically appeared tonight. Those were great. Please nice. finish those up. For those of you with food allergies, I'm sorry. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. For meditation, some suggestions are focus on your breath. Have the air come in your nose. Just let it sit and med- med- hang out in your lungs for a while and then let it out with a... That was a big word. Yeah. Marinate, that's what <laughs> Breathe in God, breathe out self. And let's take this time to get reconnected. Marination and meetings, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, lights are going to go down when you get around to turning them off. We got Mike S. going to bring the monks in as the monks stroll in. Make room for them in the back. Yep, when the monks come marching in. And we'll see you guys in three glorious minutes. The 
Let's have our secretary's report. And Join me in welcoming Ms. Tanisha. Tanisha, just after. Did you win any awards this weekend by chance? I sure did. Go, girl. Want to sing that song for us tonight? Are you serious? Yeah. No. <laughs> I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% that. (laughs) (laughs) I do lip sync battles. Um, It's something that I do for our community. um, Hi, my name is Tanisha, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Hey, Tanisha. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I've asked David to read the recovery statement. Good. You let him know, too. Mm -hmm. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovery and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Thanks. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict 
to some alcoholics, if we are cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The, al- the allergic reaction of alcohol remains with, with us for our lifetime. But we, but we have been restored to Sandy. That was the problem, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body, page 23. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thanks. 1940-style big book sponsorship from forward to second edition Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. We've seen, felt, came to believe, and experiences that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. In the back, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, the little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. Mike is in the back, ready to make a deal. (laughs) We meet every Monday promptly at 7.15 p.m., but some of us show up at 5.30 to help set up and 6.30 to fellowship. We ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at at the Road to Recovery Tune. See you next week. Thank you very much. <laughs> from the forward of the first edition from the book Alcoholics Anonymous, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show others precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book and of this group too. From there is a solution also from the big book. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. This is an open meeting and such. All who have an interest in alcoholism in the program of recovery are welcome. Because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself if you do not wish to do so. Your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours. And on the anonymity, Our meeting is going to be podcast on the World Wide Web. So... If you don't want your voice to be heard on the internet, just disguise it or pass that microphone when it comes around for the question and answer section. Can I see a show of hands of people join us for the very first time, never been here before? Who's never been in this room before? Good. We got people coming back. That's a good sign. I like sure that. Is. Um, can I see a show of hands of the recovered alcoholics in the room? If your hand's not up, I highly suggest you get to know the people whose hands are. They'll get you through the book, get you connected to God, and give you life. This is an open meeting. Did you already read that? No, nope, that's your okay. job. And as such, all who have an interest of alcoholism and our program of recovery are welcome. Because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself nor your reason for being here. If you do not wish to do so, your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours. While this is an open meeting, membership in this group is limited to those who wish to recover from alcoholism and have a desire to stop drinking for good and all. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such a responsibility. Does anybody need a big book? Did anybody get past our greeters without a big book? Yes. Okay. Get those people some books. And we got a couple of people coming in now. Let's get those folks books. There you go. Before we begin our study of the big book, last week we wrapped up one of the best 12 weeks tradition series we've had in a long time. What? Yes, we did. <clears throat> so tonight, let's give this guy a chance to blow him out of the water with his next 12 weeks. We're going to start on tradition one. And we're bringing back Rob from the old wood bench. He's back to work with us again. Rob's back. 
Hi there. Welcome back. My name's Rob, Recovered Alcoholic. Hey, Rob. Rob. See if this can keep me honest here. All right. Uh, I'm going to start on page 177 on the abridged version to uh, kick off the 12 weeks with the AA tradition here. It says, to those now in its fold, Alcoholics Anonymous has made the difference between misery and sobriety, and often the difference between life and death. AA can, of course, mean just as much to uncounted alcoholics not yet reached. Therefore, no society of men and women ever had a more urgent need for continuous effectiveness and permanent unity. We alcoholics see that we must work together and hang together, else most of us will finally die alone. The 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are, we AAs believe, the best answers that our experience has yet given to those ever-urgent questions. How can AA best function and how can AA best stay whole and so survive? On the next page, AA's 12 traditions are seen in their so-called short form, the form in general use today. This is a condensed version of the original long-form AA traditions as first printed in 1946. Because the long-form is more explicit and of possible historic value, it is also reproduced. So I'm going to start with the short form on page 178 in the abridged. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. And the long form on the next page, our AA experience has taught us that each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first, but individual welfare follows close afterward. So on that cheery note um, about all of us dying if AA does not survive, uh, we'll talk about tra- traditions and how they came to be and uh, Tradition 1 specifically. So uh, as it said there, you know, the traditions were fo- first published in 1946 uh, by Bill Wilson in a Grapevine article. And it was actually, they were called the 12 Points to Assure Our Future. And that is exactly why they were put into... Um, into tradition because Bill and Bob, you know, kicked this thing off. They kind of, you know, helped us through those early years. But at this point, um, you know, they realized that they aren't going to be around forever. And uh, the 12 traditions were voted into um, actual ratification in 1950 at the first ever AA World Conference. And uh, at that point, Dr. Bob was very sick. Um, but they got passed as our traditions as we know them today and uh, leave it to Bill and a bunch of alcoholics to name them traditions when they were just first born. Uh, but that's besides the point. So, you know, we have this, um, this beautiful stamp in a lot of these books. You know, this, this won't come on in every book, but I'm sure a lot of you recognize the, the three legacies here, the circle triangle. Uh, at the bottom of the triangle, we have recovery. And the way I was taught in uh, these traditions is that for each legacy of the circle triangle, we have 12 somethings, right? So uh, our 12 steps help us with our recovery. Uh, On the left side here on this picture, we have the unity uh, as part of our three legacies. That's what the 12 traditions is for. And then our uh, service side of the triangle, we have the 12 concepts to help guide us through that uh, service structure of uh, general service. So um, tradition one is about unity. And all of the rest of the traditions support Tradition 1 in that unity. So it was also told to me and taught to me by an old-timer when I first came in. They all follow the same, all the 12s, steps, traditions, 
and concepts all follow the same general structure. You have the first one, which is your problem. Uh, you have the second one, which is typically your spiritual solution. And then you have, um, you know, the, the work that supports that in 3 to 11. And then 12 is a spiritual payoff, right? So if we're, we're talking about the steps, you know, our alcoholism um, and unmanageability is our problem in the first one. Our spiritual solution, um, God couldn't, would if you were sought, is in the second step. And, um, you know, then the work in 3 to 11 and the spiritual payoff and helping others in that spiritual experience. So in the, in the traditions we have... Uh, our problem is a problem of unity, right? That's what the traditions are trying to solve for. AA has to be around so that uh, my two sweet little daughters uh, can can find a uh, seat in this room if they need it in years to come, right? As well as countless uh, millions of uh, people around the world uh, need to find these rooms uh, if they suffer from this disease of alcoholism. Uh, so this is there to ensure that. And all of these traditions are born of experience. So over the next 12 or so weeks, we're going to talk about all of these crazy experiences that we've learned about in uh, AA Comes of Age, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, um, The Language of the Heart, all of these books that we have and the, and the experience of the first founding members of this uh, fellowship that we can learn from and, and how these uh, traditions came into effect from trial and error, essentially. Because um, obviously they were not there when the fellowship first started but uh, critical to, to our survival. And just to go back to the line there, and then I'll wrap it up. It says, AA must continue to live or most of us surely die. It says, this is in uh, Language of the Heart in an article that Bill wrote. It says, the stark assertion carries a world of meaning for every member of Alcoholics Anonymous. While it is perfectly true that no AA group can possibly coerce an alcoholic to contribute money to conform to the 12 steps of our recovery program or to the 12 points of AA tradition, each member is nevertheless most powerfully compelled in the long run to do these very things, right? Because these are just guidelines. These are not laws. We, you know, nobody's mandating these uh, just like, you know, we have our spiritual principles uh, in the steps um, to do these very things. The truth is that in the life of each AA member, there still lurks a tyrant. His name is alcohol. He is cunning and ruthless. And his weapons are misery, insanity, and death. No matter how long we may be sober, he always stands at each man's elbow, ever watchful of an opportunity to resume his destruction. Like an agent of the Gestapo, he ever threatens each AA citizen with torture or extinction. That bill is so dark, right? This is the truth. Unless, of course, the AA citizen is willing to live unselfishly, often placing the welfare of AA as a whole ahead of his own personal plans and ambitions. Apparently, no human being can force alcoholics to live happily and usefully together, but Mr. John Barleycorn can, and he often does. Alcohol, the uh, uh, ever the persuader. That's all I have. Thank I you. I ask you a question tonight. Yeah. So we originally had the traditions that were introduced to us in the grapevine, and then they came out in 45 with the, the first pamphlet on traditions, right? Mm -hmm. And then 1950, they came up with the, long, the, the traditions, which were approved by everybody, finally. And then later on, when they started making the window shades, we came up with the short form, right? So my question is, does the short form trump the old ones? Do they work with each other? Does one, like, are the long, is, is the, the long form no longer relevant? And we do the no, short form. No, or how's, what's not. the combination of that? For, from uh, everything I've read, they, they complement each other, right? Yeah. It gives us that historical context that it was talking about and expands on the short form, right? Yeah. Maybe the short form was just so that we could fit it on the window shades. Yeah, that's why they did that. I just wondered. Yeah. 
Because it's sort of like I just didn't. Yeah, know, we don't just... we don't throw away one. Okay. Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Thank you very much. That, You're very that helps welcome. us a lot. Thank you so much. Great job. Sir. So, in order for me and us to stay focused on the big book, we use the big book study guide prepared by Krusty Cliff, who's from the Dallas Primary Purpose. And he got a lot of help from those, those two guys from Arkansas, Joe and Charlie. And who do we have reading tonight? Tonight we got Tanner coming in. Tanner's going to come. You want to come have a chair for us and start reading for us? He's going to be reading Tanner. for us. We are going to start reading on page 171 in your books. And if you, you're a purist and you brought the big one, it's going to be 177-ish, right? Go. After the page is read, we're going to ask questions from the podium, starting back at that top of that page, 171 in the skinny mini, 177 in the fatty patty. The answers will be one sentence, unless otherwise specified, and multi-part questions are simply a one-sentence answer split up, split up by commas, semicolons, hyphens, and other fun bits of punctuation. Okay, basically in English, what he just said is we're going to read the podium once, read from the podium, and then we're going to re-dissect the information which was just read a second time, and we're going to do that through a question-answer format. Purpose is to notice how the language and the questions give us new light in which to consider the study material we just read it. This is important because hearing the question and rereading the content offers a definite way of comprehending the material covered. After we've completed the page, we open up for comments, questions, and observations based on what was just read. If you have spiritual experiences with this information, you're free to share. And if you don't, feel free to just listen along or maybe ask a question. Come up to us after the meeting, specific questions and stuff like that. However, big book study is not therapy. Should you start going down rabbit holes talking about things that are more appropriately discussed with your sponsor or, you know, in a private setting, don't be offended if we cut that conversation short. For that purpose, that's why there's fellowship meetings. That's why you show up early. That's why you stick around late. Life, the day-to-day situations, that's the fellowship part. We can help each other with that. If you're anything like me, it took a village to help me get sober and get my life back on track. So I need a lot of help. Me too. You can never go wrong by commenting on the page, which brings us to the words of one of our co-founders of AA. Sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of any Alcoholics Anonymous group. 85th session tonight, I believe it is. And we just didn't decide, hey, let's just go read from uh, Dr. Bob's Nightmare tonight. We started 85 weeks ago on page zero. I want to do this in four sentences or less. So we started on page zero, which is through the forwards of preface and... uh, we do that for the main purpose that we need to get to know the program we're getting involved, involved in. So the forward and the prefaces all have information on our history and our humble beginnings and some of, the, some of the situations we are dealt with in growth. The doctor's opinion is the next chapter in the book. It talks about the problem of alcoholism. It's written by Dr. William D. Silkworth, chief physician of Towns Hospital. He talks about this physical allergy to alcohol that we suffer from if we're real alcoholics. He talks about the mental obsession that brings me back to the first drink and basically makes me insane with regard to taking that first drink against all reason. And he hints at that spiritual malady. And then when we talk about the disease, we have, into, uh, we have it described in the life of Bill. We got, a, we got a chapter called Bill's Story, which brings it all to life. It, everything we learned in the forwards and everything we learned about alcoholism in the doctor's opinion is brought to life so we have a better understanding of it and we can start to relate to it. There is a solution is the next chapter. And uh, yeah, there's this, there's this saying that meeting makers make it, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, meeting makers tend to, tend to drink if mm-hmm. all they do is make meetings, right? So there is a solution, talks about the spiritual program of action that we use to get and stay sober if we're real alcoholics, right? If we're not just problem-heavy hard drinkers. And that's there is a solution. 
And what if I'm a real alcoholic, but I'm lazy and I don't really want to go to the extent necessary that they're telling me to do? We got a chapter called More About Alcoholism, which explains to us what's going to happen if we don't go through, get a spiritual experience, which was described in Bill's story, Bill, doctor's opinion, and there's a solution. So I got a problem with God, I think, but we got a whole chapter that takes care of that, and that is called... We agnostics. We agnostics, uh, well, first on page 44, it qualifies us. It says, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely. Or if when you're drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. And if that's the case, you're probably suffering from a a sickness, which only a spiritual experience is going to conquer. And more than half of the original AA members, they were atheists or agnostics. They didn't know if they believed in God or they outright didn't believe in God. And that's not a great obstacle to having a spiritual experience to overcome alcoholism. And so if you're convinced at that point, you're painted into a corner by this whole book up to this point, you're ready to learn how it works. And if you, if you read the book and you stick to the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is no place in the book that says, okay, now we're going to do our step one work, or now we're going to do our step two work. Step one and two in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous are just conclusions of mine. So our first two steps are 48 pages plus the forwards and the doctor's opinion. So there's a lot going on there. So we got to find out that we, in order for me to have a spiritual experience, I have to start cleaning up parts of my life. We've got the third step, which is I make a decision to turn my life, my life and my will over to the care and understanding of my God. And then I do a four-step inventory where I start looking for the things that blocks me from having a healthy, ongoing relationship with God. And I take that information in a chapter called, like, I get into action with a new chapter. And the chapter is called Into Action. The chapter Into Action, we have seven steps in that one chapter. So it's packed full of content. It starts off with talking about the fifth step instructions, and that lays out why a solitary self-appraisal appraisal, excuse me, good. is insufficient. So I, I write out this inventory, but I can make myself the hero and make everyone in the world the villain. So I got to have my sponsor look at it with me, and he can help point out these patterns, these defects of character that are going to be removed in 6 and 7, help me lay out the people that I've harmed and what the harms are in 8 and 9 so that I can go forward and make those direct amends. And then we commence the way of living in 10, 11, 10 and 11 as we clean up the past in 9. So we have our personal inventory instructions, our daily meditation, our nightly reflection, instructions for how to live for somebody like me that wasn't very good at living without instructions. Nothing will so much ensure um, recovery from alcohol that I'm intensively working with other alcoholics. So we got a whole chapter on that called Working With Others. It's basically how to do a really good 12-step call, how to get involved with the person, how to find out if you're going to work with this person, get them introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, and then we get them through this book, get them through the steps, get them connected to God, which leaves us opportunities to start dealing with the people in our lives we've really screwed over. we got a chapter to the wives, to the family afterwards, and to the employers, which is great information for those people I just listed. Also, if you're going to be a sponsor, which we hopefully all are going to be, it's vital information, I think, to read that stuff so you're a more effective sponsor in order to, you know, when you're working with people who are married, it's going to be great. So when you're dealing with kids, or dealing with their families or you know people in the industry that you want to get help with so the, the family the wives and the employers is great information and now we ended up a little bit a few weeks ago in a vision for you and in a vision for you we talk about what does my life look like once i'm walking this recovered path? Or what it should look what it like, should look might like. look like right so and it says uh we're sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free, right? So if I'm not happy, joyous, and free and enjoying the fruits of the, the recovery cake, it's a fruit cake, I, I'm told. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're not enjoying that, then what, why not? You know, what are the ingredients that I'm missing? And 
a vision for you talks about, well, I don't, I don't miss drinking at all. You know, it doesn't bother me at all being sober. And it says, we laugh at such a Sally because that's like a boy whistling in the dark. You know, do I actually secretly want to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with it? And I'm just pretending like I like being sober or do I actually love my life and love this connection with the higher power that I get to experience today? And so Mike Chase actually likes to have people read that with him, right? After a couple a few of months, months later, yeah. just to find out where they stand in that part. Now we're, you know, back before we had 762 meetings a week like we have here in Broward County. If you were given the book and you lived in Broken Town, New Mexico, let's say, and you were given the book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're going through this work and you're getting sober, but you have nobody else to relate to. We had a bunch of stories in the back and we call those to the pioneers, you know, the original 67 where, you know, had their arms twisted by, you know, Bill to put some stories in. So we think it's actually appropriate for us to uh, read, read the last, the first of the stories on our last session. I think we got two more weeks of this, and then next week we start on page zero again. We start all over from the front. So we're going to be wrapping up in Dr. Bob's nightmare. Dr. Bob was uh, the, our co-founder. He was the one who was, he was, the, the, he was like the full-on God guy. You know, and Bill was the full-on media maker make it guy. So we got an opportunity to see how these two guys are a little bit different and whatnot like that. So we've read that we've had two weeks now of Dr. Bob's nightmare. Tonight, we're going to start off on page 171. Is that in the small books? Correct. 171 in the skinny book. But I think we're actually going to start reading on one... What's that page we decided to do? 170-ish? No, 169. 169. During the next few years. You got that there? Is that the right page? Yes. Good. So we're going to jump in. 169. Everybody, Everybody there at this time? Great. Oh, good. Officer. Let's go. Let's move on. Hi. All right. Here we go. You got to put that mic down a little bit so it's close. There you go. There you go. There we go. All right. During the next few years, I developed two distinct phobias. One was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. Not being a man of means, I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters, which distressed me terribly. <clears throat> Occasionally, I would yield to the morning craving, but if I did, it would be only for a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that, this would lessen the chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile, futile tossing around in bed, followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. During the subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough never to go to the hospital if I had been drinking, and very seldom did I receive patients. I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs of which I was a member and had the habit at times of registering at a hotel under, the, under, a, fictitious, under a fictitious name. But my friends usually found me, and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. If my wife was planning to go out in the afternoon... I would get a large supply of liquor and smuggle it home and hide it in the coal bin. The clothes chute over door jams, over beams in the cellar and cracks in the cellar tile. I also made use of old trunks and chests, the old can container, and even the ash container. The water tank on the toilet I never used because that looked too easy. I found, I found out later that my wife inspected it frequently. I used to put 8 or 12-ounce bottles of alcohol in a fur-lined a fur-lined glove and toss it in the back airing porch when winter days got dark enough. My bootlegger had hidden alcohol at the back steps where I could get it at my convenience. Sometimes I would bring it in my, bring it in my pockets, but they, were in, but they were inspected, and that became too risky. 
I used also to put it up on, in four-ounce bottles and stick several in my stocking tops. This worked nicely until my wife and I went to see Wallace Berry and Tugboat Annie, after, after which the pant leg and stocking racket were out. Now what we're going to read now is what we're <coughs> going to start studying tonight. So this is our study section. I will not take space to relate all my hospital or sanitarium experiences. During all this time, we began more or less ostracized by our friends. We could not be invited out because I would surely get tight, and my wife dared not invite people in for the same reason. My phobia for sleeplessness demanded that I get drunk every night, but in order to get more liquor for the next night, for the next night I had to stay sober during the day, at least up to 4 o'clock. This routine went on with few interruptions for 17 years. Wow. It was really a horrible nightmare. This earning money, getting liquor, smuggling at home, getting drunk, more jitters, taking large doses of sedatives to make it possible for me to earn more money, and so on, ad nauseum. I used to promise my wife, my friends, and my children that I wouldn't drink no more, promises which seldom kept me sober even, though, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. For the benefit of those experimentally inclined, I should mention the so-called beer experiment. When beer first came back, I thought that I was safe. I could, drink all I, wanted. I could drink all I wanted of that. It was harmless. Nobody ever got drunk on beer. So I filled the cellar full with the permission of my good wife. It was not long before I was drinking at least a case and a half a day. I put on 30 pounds of weight in about two months. Looked like a pig and was uncomfortable from shortness of breath. It then occurred to me that after one was all smelled up with beer, nobody could tell what had been drunk. So I began to fortify my beer with straight alcohol. Of course, the result was very bad, and that, ended, and that ended the beer experiment. About the time of the beer experiment, I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming, seeming poise, health, and happiness. They spoke with great freedom from embarrassment, which I could never do, and they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared very healthy. More than these attributes, they seemed to be happy. I was self-conscious and ill at ease, most of the time. My, my health was at the breaking point, and I was thoroughly miserable. I sensed they had something I did not, I did not have, from which I might read, readily profit. I learned that it was something of a spiritual nature, which did not appeal to me very much, but I thought it could do no harm. I gave the matter much time and study for the next two and a half years, but I still got tight every, every night nevertheless. I read everything I could find and talked to everyone who I thought knew anything about it. My wife became deeply interested, and it was her interest that sustained, that sustained mine. Though, <clears throat> though I at no time sensed that it might be an answer to my liquor problem, how my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know. But she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. For some reason, we alcoholics seem to have the gift of picking out the world's finest women. Why they should be subjected to the tortures we inflict upon them, I cannot explain. So let's, uh, we're going to just, this question is quick and easy to answer. Then we're going to jump into the next part of the book really quick, too, because this is two different, two segments of his life drinking. So I'll do the, the stick tonight, and you can do the questions. Sure thing. You're good with that? Okay. You can just hang out up here for a while. Does anybody catch on to the fact that Bill really wasn't, or Bob wasn't really trying to stop drinking? <laughs> he was just trying not to get caught, wasn't he? <laughs> So we're on page 171 in the skinny version, and it's, uh, I will not take space. Sentence paragraph. What will we not learn of? 
sanitarium experiences. Next paragraph. By this time, who abandoned us? During all this time, we became more and less ostracized by our friends. All right, we got a two-part question here. Why were invitations not being extended to the Smith family, and what did Anne dare not do? We could not be invited out because I would surely get tight, and my wife would not would dare not invite people in for the same reason. Got another, fo- we got another two-parter here. His fear of sleeplessness demanded what of him, and but to be sure he had what he needed, what did he find he had to do? My phobia for sleeplessness demanded that I get drunk every night, but in order to get some more liquor for the next night, I had to stay sober during the day, at least up to 4 o'clock. How long did this routine continue? This routine went on with few interruptions for 17 years. What was his nightmare? It was really a horrible nightmare, this earning money, getting liquor, smuggling it home, getting drunk, morning jitters, taking large doses of sedatives to make it possible for me to earn more money, and so on ad nauseum. We had a two-part question here. What promise did he make, and how successful was he with his promises? Uh, I used to promise my wife, my friends, and my children that I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober enough throughout the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. All right, and we got two notes there for that last segment. What promises have you made, and how well did you do with yours? Not very well in my case. All right, next paragraph. For the experimentally inclined, what experiment does he refer to? For the benefit of those experimentally inclined, I should mention the so-called beer experiment. What made him feel safe? When beer first came back, I thought that I was safe. What could he do with that stuff? I could drink all I wanted of that. Why did he say it was harmless? It was harmless. Nobody ever got drunk on beer. Who said he could fill the place with beer? Uh, so I filled the cellar with, oh wait, no, hold on. Yeah. 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 Um, filled the cellar no, full with permission of my good wife. Before long, what was he doing? It was not long. It was not long before I was drinking at least a case and a half a day. What did this do for him? I put on 30 pounds of weight in about... Two months, looked like a pig, and I was uncomfortable from shortness of breath. We got a two-part question here. Then what occurred to him, and so what did he begin to do then? It then occurred to me that after one was all smelled up with beer, nobody could tell what had been drunk, so I began to fortify my beer with straight alcohol. And what were the results? So I began to... So I began to fortify my... Of course. Of course, the result was very bad, and that ended the beer experiment. We got the next paragraph here. About the same time, he joined up with what kind of people? About the time of the beer experiment, I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. Comment. Here, Dr. Bob is referring to the Akron-Oxford group. What were they able to do that Dr. Bob could not do. They spoke with great freedom from embarrassment, which I could never do, and they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared very healthy. And more important, they seemed to be what? Was that the, did we already answer that one? Uh, Let's let's go, next question. How did Dr. Bob describe himself at this time? 
more than these attributes, these seems to be happy. I was self-conscious and at ease with most of the time. And My, what, uh, what did he sense? Say that again. What did he sense? Oh. I sensed uh, sense that they had something I did not have from which I might readily profit. Thank you. Next question is a three-parter. What kind of thing was it they had? How did that strike him? And, but how did they feel about it? How did he feel about it? I learned that it was something of a spiritual nature, which did not appeal to me very much, but I thought it could do no harm. Two-part question. How long had he been trying the Oxford program, and what were the results? I gave the matter much time and study for the next two and a half years, but I still got tight every night, nevertheless. What else did he do? I read everything I could find and talked to everyone who I thought knew anything about it. Next paragraph, we got a three-part question. What did Ann do? How did that affect him? And what was he unable to sense? Uh, my wife became deeply interested, and it was her interest that sustained mine. Though I had at no time sensed, that it might be an answer to my liquor problem. What was Ann able to do that Dr. Bob could not understand? How my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know, but she did. Had Ann not kept her faith, what did Dr. Bob know he would have happened to him? If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. What gift have alcoholics been given? For some reason, we alcoholics seem to have the gift of picking out the world's finest women. What can we never explain? Why they should be subject to the tortures we inflict upon them, I cannot explain. For comments, you know, imagine if you came to so he's going to the Oxford group, right? And that's a spiritual based thing. But this was a different Oxford group than the ones they were doing in New York City. The New York City had sort of tweaked their Oxford group, you know, to deal with the drunks that were coming from the Bowery's and stuff. These guys were just all about, you know, getting uh, wayward normal people back on a spiritual path. And this was fundamentalist Christian Christian thing that was started there. So you had a bunch of high rollers, you know, because there was a lot of money in Akron with the rich people who had lost their way and became greedy little turds. And uh, they had this opportunity to start seeking God. And he felt that my drinking was perhaps a direct result of my lack of spirituality, my lack of spiritual relation with God. And if I had more God in my life, perhaps I might not drink so much. After a whole night of being really spiritual, he's driving home and they have a drink the first thing to do when they get home because he had no idea what alcoholism was. He thought if he was real spiritual, he should be able to drink. But we know better. and We'll hear about that a little bit later. Hey, sir. Hi there. Recovered alcoholic. My name is Barry. Hey, Barry. Barry. And uh, I wasn't here last week, but uh, in the preceding pages, he he talks about uh, being stuck between Scylla and Charybdis and Scylla. You know, being this giant monster on a rock that uh, gobbled up all the ships that passed through who were trying to avoid Charybdis, which was a whirlpool. So they see the whirlpool, try to avoid it, and get gobbled up by this monster um, in Greek mythology. So, you know, that is very relatable when I think back uh, about my period when I 
kind of knew what a solution was, but didn't want to stop. Didn't know how to stop, you know, continuing to drink only because I didn't want to die if I did stop. And meanwhile, trying to hide it all. It's just pure insanity. And, you know, everybody knew. And in, in my group of friends, you know, I'm the only alcoholic in the group. You know, they just didn't know what to do with me. So it's kind of dark to think back, you know, where I was during that time, you know, trying to be, conceal everything, even though I was concealing nothing and carrying a job where, you know, I, I would have the, the bottle of liquor in my office, you know, visible, which was standard in, in that profession, but hiding the bottle of vodka under the desk, you know, I, I wasn't fooling anybody. And to go from there to, um, you know, not being programmed by my program, but being transformed as a result of thoroughly working the steps is, is miraculous. So um, it's fun to think back, you know, that throughout all that, you know, I've come to this point, and that's a result of thoroughly working with my sponsor and, and really giving myself to this. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. For sure. And you're blessed you had a, that you had a program when you needed it, right? right? He didn't have a program. Hi. Oh, you're back here. Hello. Hi. My name's Jessica. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Jessica. And where it talked about I was really horrible, nightmare, earning money, getting liquor, smuggling at home, getting drunk, all those things. Like, it just reminded me of the insanity of, like, trying to figure out what the whole, you know, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, and how am I going to get away with it. And, you know, the promises, what promises did I make? I can't even tell you a promise I didn't make. And, you know, like, show, I'll be there for Christmas. I'll be there for the everything, like certain different events. And oh, I'll be right back. <laughs> that was a big one. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad I can laugh about it today. But, yeah, it's pretty devastating on people that I, you know, promised, you know, especially my family. And... You know, in the end, it says I, on the end of that paragraph, though, I was very sincere when I made those promises. And yeah, I never meant to hurt anyone. I can pretty much say that I never went out to hurt anyone. However, I didn't really care if I hurt anyone because of my allergy and the obsession. And like, I know I was hurting people, but like I said, I didn't care because all they wanted was to be a part of my life and, and me do good. And um, so um, also like switching brands and the beer and all that, I've totally done that. And mainly because of the people I was hanging out with trying to fit in, but when I didn't get my way or... I got hurt or angry, I would go and take my uh, drug of choice, pretty much. And uh, it reminded me a lot where it says my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years. And the first person that came to my mo mind is my mom. And I'll never know what my mom did, but, she, you know, she was pretty depressed, but she still had to work and do what she had to do. But I know I would have been dead a long time ago if it wasn't, for her being there and praying for me and my dad always trying to help me pick up some of my wreckage and, you know, just helping me to, you know, where I could take a shower or 
you know, when I was in jail or having clean sheets to sleep in over the night, you know, it's like those amends can never be made up like as much as it is, you know, making a living amends. And, you know, like she will yell at me and say, you ruined my life, you know, because of my allergy and like, I get her pain and resentment. It's just, you know, I don't really believe that to a certain extent. But, um, you know, I have to allow her to be human and do what she, you know, feels. And, like, you know, there are ways to get better. So, yeah, my mom was like a, is like a blessing. And, I, you know, whoever doesn't have a mom, I feel for you. And um, that's all I got to share. Thanks for sharing. We got a couple of hands over here. Hi, Meg, alcohol, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Meg. Um, the one thing I find I've really tapped into in the last month or so is when you think of Bill's story and Bob's story, which I've read many, many times, just how truly extraordinary it is that there was none of this existed. There were no treatment centers. There was, and, and when you when you put yourself in that frame of mind when you read their stories. It's like it opens up this whole other dimension of the terror and the fear and the complete lack of knowledge of what was going on with them. And I can't imagine, as hard as my personal journey has been, and I'm sure many of you in here, um, not knowing that there was any kind, anywhere to go or any solution or anything and what that would feel like. And that, to me, leaves very little doubt of the divine intervention that happened when you connect all the dots of... Um, you know, Carl Jung and, and the whole Oxford group and all of that connects down and ends up touching Dr. Bob. I mean, there's just, there's no doubt that God reached out and saved these two men so that the rest of us could benefit. But I, I often, when I will be working with sponsees in the future, I really want to ask them to put those glasses on before they read the story and think about it as a place of zero hope that these men were walking through. And it just touches me greatly, and it really makes both of their stories come very much alive for me. So, they call those places dry out places because they had no solution other than dry them out and hope the phenomenon would not kick in for a while. Uh, Dave, alcoholic. Hey, Dave. Dave. Um, The part that really grabbed me was on page 172, the first full paragraph. About the time of the beer experiment, I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. Um, Just Working in the music industry, I always kind of gravitated towards the sober group of people. And um, there's different groups that have meetings at set breaks and stuff. And I always kind of looked up to them and didn't, never really grasped that all I had to do was pick up the book. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot more than that. But, <laughs> but uh, it all starts with this book. Um, and it, it just kind of goes to show you that you're, it's as big of a problem as you let it be. There is a way out. Um, and everybody who has figured the way out or worked the steps to get out is more than happy to help because that's the point of it. Boom. You got it. Thanks for sharing. We got one up front Mic here. drop. I'm Recovered Alcoholic, and my name is Peter. Hey, Peter. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about, um, you know, Dr. Bob's state of mind um, as he's telling his story here. Um, you know, here's a medical man um, that has everything going for him on the spiritual side, but yet doesn't have the facts about, you know, the, the physical allergy and his reaction to alcoholism, um, or to alcohol. 
And, you know, for many years, you know, I thought, you know, I was just a stoner. I liked to get high. You know, it was a way of life. Um, and I never got that, you know, um, that I was reacting to this stuff, you know, internally in my body indifferently than my sister did. Because, you know, a fine example, I and my sister grew up in the same home with the same single parent, had mostly all the same experiences thereof. <coughs> and yet, you know, she drank a little pot. She, I mean, she smoked a little pot. She drank a little bit. You know, and never, you know, reacted like I did. I smoked a little bit and I wanted to smoke some more. I drank a little bit, and man, the party was on, you know. Um, so it took many, many, many years, you know, to um, to come to the realization that, you know, truly I, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not a moderate drinker. I'm not a heavy drinker. You know, I'm an alcoholic. When I put this stuff into me, you know, I have a physical reaction, which triggers a phenomenon of craving. And today... Um, you know, uh, how, how should I say that I have that information today and now it's like, what do I do with it? You know, well, this book has given me that, you know, that, that peace, you know, I have a solution today and that solution comes through a higher power and you guys, thank you. Thanks for sharing. Thanks. You know, I'm reminded when. Dr. Bob talks about the beer experiment at page 31 and more about alcoholism. Here are some of the methods we have tried to control our drinking. Drinking beer only. Well, there you go. That's only one, though. Limiting the number of drinks. Never drinking alone. Never drinking in the morning. Drinking only at home. Never having it in the house. Never drinking during business hours. Drinking only at parties. Swishing from scotch to brandy. Drinking only natural wines. Agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job. Taking a trip. Not taking a trip. Swearing off forever with and without a solemn oath. Taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to treatment centers, asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. And then we also try, what, do we, what else do we try? We try detoxes, rehabs, 90 and 90, put the plug in the jug, meeting makers make it. But what's missing? Right? God. God is missing. So we have this spiritual program of action. And in Dr. Bob's case, what, what Peter was talking about, we, we have this, he had this spiritual connection. He had this real kind of lively uh, spiritual thing that was going on with him, and he was happy, joyous, and free, but he can't take a drink because of that. He still has that physical component of the disease. So anybody else out there experiment with, uh, yeah, we got Tanner. Let's go, man. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Tanner. Hey, Tanner. Tanner. You know, uh, uh, Talking to the fuzzy part. When we, uh, when we first, uh, at the very beginning, says during all this time we became more or less ostracized by our friends. Um, I was I was enabled by a lot of people. My 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 brother, uh, at a a very young age, my mother, you know, uh, would buy me alcohol. My brother would get me drunk and 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 this kind of thing. And you know, uh, growing up, I thought that was normal. And when I began to realize that. My normal friends uh, were kind of like, you, dude, what are you doing? Uh, I kind of felt a lot of shame and guilt, like I had done something wrong, because, you know, and I began to live this, like, double life. And I lived in a small community, you know, like 1,200 people in my town, so not only, like, did I feel that my friends uh, 
looked down upon me, but everybody in the community, you know, quickly got word of that I was screwing up and that I was doing this and that. And then it's, then it got to a point where like, I couldn't even, couldn't even look up. I was always, my head was always down. I was always miserable, shame, guilt, all of it. And then, you know, which just drove me deeper and deeper down to my, into my alcoholism. Um, and in the beginning, uh, it says down at the bottom, uh, Promises which were seldom kept me sober, even though the day, even through the day, I, though I was very sincere when I made them. In the beginning, I made so many promises uh, or excuses, or to justify to these to these people that I was a big people pleaser. These these normal friends, you know, that played you know sports and this and that, were doing good and actually striving for something in their lives, um, and I was never sincere. I was never sincere to them, to my family, until it got really bad, until I got to that point where I was so desperate that I realized that, uh, you know, I, I kind of opened my eyes a little bit, and, uh, you know, there, there's no more being in denial. So with that, I think I'll end. Yeah. Thanks for Makes sharing. me think of uh, the man of 30. You know, this is a guy who was surrounding himself with friends who, who were – positive influences in his life they saw that when they went out drinking after class you know let's go let's go have a couple of beers and you know and dish about the professor they'd all have a couple of drinks and maybe some shots and and this guy this man of 30 he would snap he would flip next thing you know he's doing shots and continual shots he's got this phenomenal craving and everybody else looks at him like dude what is up with you it's like we go out for a couple of drinks and you're just you turn into this drink monster and through their positive reinforcement of hey man of 30 perhaps you shouldn't drink because when you drink you know you get out of craziness and he so he Cuts off drinking for a while because he's not suffered from that, their mental obsession. So if you look at Bill's story and the way I read it, this pages we read today, I don't see a single day where he was not in phenomenon craving. There wasn't a day he went where he wasn't drinking because he could not stop. And his whole life for those last years was based on, he said he had a, a phobia of, of not sleeping. You know, it's like he has a phobia of running out of booze and has a phobia that he's not going to have a drink. The phenomenon of craving keeps us up all night long. So, you know, this guy, I'm, I, when I first found out about a program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was like, wow, you know. But imagine what it was like. I got out of, you know, detox and they said, uh, no, no, just, just don't drink anymore. I'd be dead. Anybody else got their <laughs> hand up over here tonight? Rob, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Rob. Man, Dr. Bob is describing his, his 17 years and his nightmare and, and what he went through um, to continue doing what he was doing to drink uh, against, you know, to, to overcome this craving and, and uh, the lengths that he went. And, um, you know, he doesn't specifically say how he felt in there, but I'm always reminded um, of Bill's story. And, you know, th this part of Bill's story I can definitely relate to. It says... The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unfor unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. On the next page, it says, No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I, I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. You know, they also talk about king alcohol and, and um, a vision for you and, and waking up to those four uh, horsemen, uh, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And that was my experience. And I can um, 
you know, guarantee that was Dr. Bob's experience waking up every morning in this routine for 17 years. You know, there's a, there's a rap lyric and a, and a song I was listening to today that says, I never knew what prison, sorry, I never knew what freedom was until I learned what prison meant, you know, and, and that's true for me, but it was more in the reverse, right? I lived this alcoholic life for such a long time that it was like my alcoholic life seemed my only normal life, right? Like our, our level of acceptance of, of what we're willing to do to continue to live this life that we're living keeps getting lower and lower. At least it did for me, you know, and it wasn't until, you know, I I was brought into Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, by God's grace. And, you know, somebody that had been down this road before me grabbed me and said, Hey, come on, let's do this. And I get to like come out the other side and and experience freedom and be like, Oh my gosh. Like, you know, it's how I would imagine like my toddler feels like, just living completely in the moment, just connected to God, like before all of this ego comes in, um, just like getting to live that now and like experience that with them is just, um, you know, that's the freedom that we're born to have. Like that's how we're designed uh, by God is to enjoy this life, uh, not to live the, the way that, that I lived for many years, that Dr. Bob lived, that, that Bill lived. And, uh, you know, it talks about these people that came into his life, like freedom from embarrassment and all these things and, you know, happy, joyous and free people. And uh, God put a sober alcoholic in my life a couple years before I actually got sober um, through an ad on Craigslist. I put out an ad to get a roommate on Craigslist. And, and this was the only uh, crazy loon that I let in there. And, um, you know, turns out he was two years sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, yeah, God uses Craigslist, too. So, like... You know, if I was so inclined to take this guy's inventory, which I was, uh, there was a lot of like negative things that I could say about him. But uh, the fact was, is that he was happy and he was sober. He didn't have to drink every day. He was working for himself, doing what he loved, hanging out in nature, taking pictures. And, uh, you know, that was attractive to me because I didn't I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't go a day without a drink. Um, so it's the attraction rather than promotion and and God put that person in my life. And and eventually, you know, I I came into these rooms and people were sharing these things, uh, that I would never share out loud. And in my very first meeting, people were saying some things I'm like, bro, like, you know, but they were sharing it without embarrassment and they were happy and they'd clearly come through the other end of it. You know, they were, they were happy and not ashamed and, uh, they drank like I drank. They felt like I felt, but here they were. You know, and, and sharing their experience without reservation, and they reach their hand out and say, "Come on, let's do this." You know, I got hope in my very first meeting, and just super grateful for those members. So, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for sharing. That line, a, pheno- the, a phenomenal craving we can't overcome. When I was in the craving, I had no desire whatsoever to overcome it. It's like I wasn't thinking, "Oh, I better be, make this my last drink." I was. My desire was to not get caught, was to figure out how I can cancel that business meeting the next morning, how I can call in sick without getting fired, how I can keep this pony going, you know? Oh, yeah. It was very rarely just like you don't read anything in Dr. Bob's story so far about I tried to cut back. You know, I, I, he was forced to go to beer because his wife made him, but he didn't want to himself. We don't, get, we don't usually get ready until we're ready to do what we need to do. So next week we start seeing a flip around in dr bob's life we see what happens and we're going to see what happened what he actually did with it when he got sober so check back next week we're going to be getting to the good part will there be donuts spoilers i don't know about donuts but dr bob certainly turns his life around let's give tanner a read of applause for being 
and I, I want to thank everybody who contributed. We had some fantastic shares today. You know, let us talk about drugs and stuff. We all seem to be comfortable talking about our drinking too. Dr. Bob's closing. A vision for you, page 164. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but you obviously can't transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. It is the practice of the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group for the group member sponsors to introduce their new sponsees by presenting them with a sponsorship medallion. Do we have any new sponsees that we're going to introduce tonight? And here she comes again. Tanisha, where's the yellow sticky thing? Congratulations. Welcome back. Thank you. Tanisha, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Tanisha. I'd like to present Heather with a sponsorship medallion. This is such amazing. I've been coming to this meeting so long. Go. I love Heather. Um, she's, like, diligent. She comes to these meetings. Um, she does what she has to do. And um, I'm proud to be a, her sponsor. You know, like I always say, I need them more than they need me. So thank you so much and welcome, Heather, again. Congratulations. Good going. Do we have anybody celebrating an anniversary tonight, multiple years, that would like to pick up a medallion and tell us how they did it? Not tonight. Let us know if you got one for next week. We'll, we'll see what we can do for that. Is anyone in need of a big book sponsor? Any, anybody out there flying sponsorless? You need a sponsor, raise your hand. We'll get you connected. If you're shy, come up to us afterwards. We'll get, somebody, get you hooked up with somebody who sponsors out of the book, which would be, according to Dave's, a great way to go. Um, can all home group members raise your hands? Hope to see you all help tear down the room tonight. That's going to be a hoot to do. Uh, great to see you here. By the way, we got Peter on three more weeks of Thursday night. And then after that, we got Pat R. starting off. So start telling your buddies Pat's coming back. Pete's wrapping up. We got three more great nights. And we got Pat Chicken on, which is going to be great. Yeah. And that is the uh, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Step Series, which starts at 7.15 downstairs in the fellowship room. And if you would, please wait until you're 75 feet from the doors of the church to smoke or vape. So let's close with the Lord's Prayer. We just quiet down a moment. Who's going to bring us from shame to grace if we allow? Our Father. Drive safe. See you Thursday. Godspeed to y'all. Godspeed.
zan 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 oh when you smiling when you smiling the whole smiles with you with everybody yes when you laughing When you're laughing Yes, the sun Comes shining through But when you're crying You bring on the rain Stop your sighing, baby And be happy again Yes, and keep on smiling Keep on smiling, baby And I hope
Michael Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. I'm 
Blooms are green now, growing vines. They twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my life. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.